Good morning. Well, it is great to be back with you here uh, on Sunday morning. And uh, just interested note for those of you that maybe are new or visiting, I've had the last month where rather than spend the uh, normal time that I do in the week preparing for each sermon, the church as a whole gave me the opportunity to use that time to prepare for the year as we had substitute preachers come in and deliver the word. And as someone who had the chance to sit in the congregation, let me just tell you, it just gave me a whole new affection, appreciation, and love for our church. Uh, sitting next to you, enjoying the time of worship, being ministered to through the preaching of the word and uh, through the worship. And uh, I just want to give a special shout out and thanks again to Tim, Jack, and David for the last month that they did in preaching. Would you give them thanks along with me? No, it was great, and I personally was ministered very much by each one. I learned a few things along the way, too. Uh, there was one Sunday in particular that I decided to sit up in the balcony, and one of the things that I learned is it is hot up there. I don't know how y'all endure it. Um, if y'all after church see someone and their face is glowing like Moses and they saw the Lord, no, they just sat in the balcony. They came down hot. The other thing that was interesting when I sat up there that surprised me, I just, I don't know why, it just caught me off guard, and that is when the preacher came up and said, let's take out our Bibles and let's read the Word, and all of a sudden, throughout the floor, I saw this sea of white, all the white pages that opened up. I can't see that from up here. I don't know if you're in the Bible or doing email, uh, but up there, it was just, it was, it was really cool just to see how you know, people want to engage with God's word and to hear from that. So the other final thing that I learned through this is that app is cool. Is that not the best tool ever? I got on there and kept all my sermon notes on that, and uh, it was just, it was great. It was something I could access during the week with incredible ease. And so uh, just awesome things that we have. And for me personally, and looking ahead and thinking about, okay, Lord, if the intent is to plan really throughout the year, where is it that you would have us to go? I realized at the very beginning of that, that's a very intimidating thing because I'm going to come down and people are going to go, so what did the Lord tell you? And I've made this vow. When I get asked that question, I'm going to say, he told me no more coffee in the sanctuary on Sundays. <laughs> and I know I'll hear heresy, <laughs> blasphemy. No, I didn't have a mountaintop experience where I come away and I say, God just revealed to me and, and just made something crystal clear. But what he did do was at the beginning, made a point to sit down with our elders and said, as shepherds of this flock, help me. What would God have us to go through and look through in the next year? And I carry that as a significant part of God speaking to me. And so when I did so, they gave me some great input and things to think about. And one, of course, is which had to do with just keep us rooted in the word. Come back to the text, keep us in the text. But another component had to do with a theme of unity. And just realizing the year that we face in front of us and the opportunities for problems, um, unity would be a key theme. And that had me thinking a little bit further, too, because I was thinking, my goodness, if we are really making a purpose and a point to be a disciple-making church, that means we are going to be seeking to do and to accomplish the will of God. And if we're going to do that, do you think that's going to put a target on our backs by the enemy? Everybody say, yeah. Yeah, it is. 
And so how will he do it? I don't know. There's a number of different ways he can do it. One, he'll try to distract us to get us onto lesser things. Another thing I thought about is he'll try to discourage us. But one of the main things he'll try to do is to divide us and divide us over lesser things, things that we don't need to divide over. So with this year coming up, you know, you've got the election, you've got all the politics. What about Israel? You've got, uh, you know, the border crisis and all kinds of things that people come into this room on Sunday morning and that's static on the line because they've been looking at their social media, their feeds, their email and so forth. And then you add to that just the other things that Christians in particular can divide over, whether it's the style of music or the volume of music or the, the uh, I mean, just ad infinitum. There's so many different things. Well, what helps me is when you know an assault is coming, you know how to prepare for it. When you know the enemy's coming from that direction, you can point in that direction and you can be prepared. So what would prepare our church to be one, to be unified in Christ? Well, spoiler alert, David already read it. It's the book of 1 Corinthians. And so what we want to do is spend some time in that book. And if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to make that sea of white appear as you open them up to chapter 1 again. And the theme behind this book, it's timeless. It's just a call to the Corinthians to be a holy church in a very challenging culture. And it's the same thing that we face today. And what Paul's going to make a point to do is he's going to let these people know, look, the same gospel that saved you is the same gospel that God is going to use to transform you and then begin to transformation out into the world because the world is looking for something different. They've seen everything. They've, they've seen so many different things. What's real? You know, we live in this AI world now where people are going to be even questioning that. One thing, when you see real love happen in a congregation, when you see a congregation rooted around the Lord Jesus Christ and on truth, you know it. You sense it. And Paul makes a point to say, that's what you want to be about. And the similarities that the Corinthian church is going through compared to our times, I mean, you look at it, it's 2,000 years ago, but then you look at it and you go, there's nothing new under the sun. For starters, culturally, they were similar to our postmodernism mindset because theirs was a day, too, in which they regarded feeling over facts. How does something make me feel versus what is the reality? What is the truth of a situation? They, too, faced intellectual pluralism and situational ethics because they lived in a place where there was competing ideas and ideologies and philosophies and so many different things and religions, and all were competing to get the attention and the minds and the hearts of the people that they were presented to. And then, of course, like any church in any time and any place, there was a struggle with selfishness, looking out for me and myself at the expense of other people. And finally, while they didn't have social media, they did have influencers. And as a result, there was this desire to be known by the people that you followed. There was a cult of personality that was prevalent. And so they sought to align themselves with different people and say, this is what we're about. This is who we're about. And so bottom line, this is a church that had problems. Now, everyone right there should have gone, amen. Amen. We can relate. It's not perfect. It's a church that struggled with issues and they weren't doing so good at times. And we too struggle and we will struggle. We'll continue to. But the issue here. It wasn't so much an outside persecution coming on them. Rather, it was this inward adaptation to society. Not in what they believed, but how they lived what they believed. 
They weren't going to look any different. So the Christian then was failing to carry out their purpose to the world, not because they didn't have the message, but because they didn't have the lives. And they began to look more and more like the world that they lived in and didn't stand out. And they failed to recognize that the greatest thing they had to offer was the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God came down, took our sins upon a cross, was killed upon that cross, paid for those sins, but then he rose again to bring a new life to people that they could walk in and abide by. And that message was not only meant to be spoken, but it was certainly also meant to be lived out. And that is where this church began to lose their footing. So they, they weren't standing out morally. Some of the issues they were facing with, um, they had infighting, bragging, sexual sins, uh, all kinds of issues with marriage, a failure to distinguish between morals and people's personal convictions, and disorder and chaos within the worship services that they were having. A self-serving mindset was prevalent among them. And so in short, this was a lovelessness that they had. And whenever you have that kind of a lovelessness, disunity is going to follow. That's what they faced. So when the church failed to fulfill her function in the city, the city began to make its way into the church and how they lived. And so Paul was going to correspond with them and help to set things right. Now, I've got a little chart up here, and I apologize for its smallness. You may not be able to read it, but it just kind of gives a little breakdown. This is from one of my seminary professors, Tom Constable, who uh, kind of gives you the time frame on how these letters worked out. There's a reason I want to share this with you, because the way things start out initially is first you have Paul pays a visit to them, and then afterwards he writes them a letter. It's not the book of 1 Corinthians. It was a different letter that he wrote. They wrote a letter in response to that, and they had some questions for him. So he writes a second letter to respond to those questions, and the second letter is 1 Corinthians. Are you all confused yet? The second letter is 1 Corinthians. Well, a little bit of time goes on, and you see he has a visit with them. Then he has what he called his severe letter, where he really reprimanded them. And then he wrote them again. And that fourth letter is the one we call 2 Corinthians. Now, the reason I give you this history is because you just need to realize when you go into this letter, you're picking up into a conversation that has already been happening. And so he's going to be answering and dealing with things that they presented, and the work is on us to do a little understanding of what was the questions being asked, what were the issues, and how was he going to deal with them. Now, what I did, I'm just going to give you a preview into the next several months in terms of what we're going to do, because we're going to break this book into a few segments and then we're going to occasionally take a break from 1 Corinthians, look at a few other things, then we'll come back to it. Um, but as we go along, I'm just going to kind of break it down into how this book can be divided up. Chapters 1 through 4, I'm calling this one, The Local Church, Bright Lights Casting Dark Shadows. Because they were a church meant to emit the brightness of the glory of Jesus Christ, and yet they were being known more for the dark shadows that they were casting. After that, you go to chapters 5 and 6, and I'm calling this one Breaking Bad, uh, when sin becomes cancer, because sin had begun to run rampant throughout it, and they weren't dealing with it. And then you've got chapter 7, which is just questions on marriage and in ministry in particular. You move then into chapters 8, 9, and 10, and this is going to be, I'm calling this Love and Let Live, because the idea behind this is that how do you distinguish between your personal convictions and the clear morals that the Bible presents? 
Folks, that is one of the biggest issues the Christian church faces. It is very hard for us to distinguish that and to allow other people their liberties and some of their convictions. So I saved that one for right in front of the election. Y'all get ready. <laughs> Chapters 11 through 14, I call this a heart of worship because Paul deals with some of the issues that this church has regarding their worship services and the, the things that they were doing and the disorder that they were allowing. And then you get to chapter 15, and this one is all about the resurrection. And this is the crux of what we believe. We're going to spend some time here. I want to just say a little something about the resurrection. This really is the crux of what we believe. When we gather together, we talk about the cross, and we should. Because that is where we discuss the penalty and the payment for sin. But you know what my discovery has been? And this was really highlighted to me when I was going through seminary because I thought, yeah, this applies to me. We often treat the resurrection as a footnote. It's a little something extra that's a little bonus behind the cross. But the resurrection is not a footnote. It is the focal point of what we believe. And so in the book of Acts, in fact, I, I was listening and reading some things about this and found out a little bit of trivia behind this. In the book of Acts, you realize every single sermon that is brought up, the key focus of it is the resurrection. Every sermon and speech is about the resurrection ultimately. And you got 260 chapters in your New Testament as a whole, but you have 300 times where the resurrection is mentioned and brought up. It's that big of a deal. And yet most of us, when do we hear about it? Easter and a funeral. Not in this book. You're going to see it in every single chapter. It is that big of a deal. In fact, one of the statistics says 33% of people from Generation Z believe uh, that the resurrection never happened in history. I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Only 33% do believe that it happened in history. One out of every three in Gen Z. And then in Britain, 25% of professing Christians say that the doctrine of the resurrection is not an essential of the Christian faith. Whoa. I would argue, I don't know that you can be a Christian if you don't understand and believe in the resurrection because you don't really fully understand who Christ is and what he's done. Well, once we get done with the resurrection, the last one's on one chapter, chapter 16. I'm going to call it cleanup on aisle 16 because Paul just uses this as his opportunity to clean up on some of the other issues that he hasn't been able to cover so far. And each week, I'm going to give you a mission, should you choose to accept it. I'm going to give you a memory verse. And there's a reason. Because every time you sit down to memorize a verse, you are meditating. You have to. You've got to chew on it, remember it. And as a result, when you do so, the Holy Spirit will take that and he'll use it in your life at a time when you're not even expecting it. And he'll take that verse and bring it to bear. And the second reason I'm going to give you this is because the verses that we're going to look at also give us sort of an anchor point as to what's happening within the book of 1 Corinthians. So by memorizing these verses, you'll really know the flow and the essence of this book. So anytime you go back to it, you can teach it, you can pass it on to others, you can instruct others, and you know what the key points are. See what happens when you give me a month to go plan? I make all kinds of work for you. <laughs> Now, a little side note on this, one of my times of, one of my best, one of the periods of my life where I experienced one of the best seasons of growth before I became a pastor was when I made the purpose that every service that I sat in, I was going to take notes and I was going to own that text for the following week. That was going to be my devotional text. 
I was going to study it. I was going to read it. I was going to look at commentaries on it. I was going to memorize it. Before the week was out, I was asking, God, how do I apply this? So I want to provide, I'm not saying everybody needs to do this, but I'm just saying there's power in taking something and really seeking to own it. And so that's what I want to do is to help you. So are you ready? We kick off here with the first uh, nine verses of um, 1 Corinthians. And again, it's within the series of the local, or it's within the context of the local church. That's what's happening. So you've got bright lights, but they're casting dark shadows in their community. And before he addresses any of their problems, Paul's going to do something that will surprise you. He's going to affirm that this problematic church with all these issues still shines the brightness of the glory of God. It doesn't mean they're not believers. It means they're struggling, and that's a good thing. In fact, in verse 1, Paul starts with a greeting. Now, often when we look at his greetings, I, I, I'm tempted to. You just kind of gloss past it. Yeah, 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 right, right. Okay, grace, peace, mercy, blah, 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 move on. Uh, but with Paul, every single word that he puts, it has a very clear purpose. And so in verses 1 through 3, he is recognizing God's work on these people. Rather than go, you guys are bad, you're a terrible lot. He says, let's talk about God and what God has done by bringing you into the faith. You're here because Jesus has brought you here. And so he mentions another fellow, Sosthenes. Um, he comes along. I want you to note that. When Paul does ministry, he's got somebody with him. He doesn't go solo. He's got someone he's going to be teaching. He's going to be instructing. He's going to give them opportunities for ministry. He may even hand the ministry off. But time and again, when you read his letters, it's going to be Paul and Silas, Paul and Timothy. And here is Paul and Sosthenes. Who is he? We don't know. He was somebody with, with Paul. A lot of people think the conjecture, well, is this the same Sosthenes in Acts 18? The one who was the religious, um, the Jewish religious leader who when the Jews brought Paul before the Romans to try to get some sort of criminal charge against him and the Romans dismissed him, they turned on their leader, Sosthenes, and they beat him up. And I've always wondered, is that this guy? Because, man, wouldn't that be a testimony? You know, here's Paul, the one who persecuted and killed the Christians, and God brought him around to the faith. Here's a guy who was out to persecute the Christians, but his own people turned against him, and God used that to turn him around in his faith. It'd be amazing. Whether or not that was the case, I don't know. But the guy is a testimony. So Paul reminds the Corinthians, first of all, when he starts, of his role. He says, I'm an apostle. I'm somebody who has seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, I was called to be that. He didn't go looking for it. He didn't say, you know, how can I get on this quest to be this person? He says, God called me into this. And you know what's fascinating to me? Is then he turns that around to his congregation in verse 2, and he says, the same way God called you into the faith. It's that big of a deal. None of us are here by accident. And so, again, he's... Before he goes into the problems, verse 2, he calls them by this name. And this is something you can underline if you have your Bible. In verse 2, he says, this is the church of God which is at Corinth. I've, I probably sound like a broken record, but this is a church with problems. Big problems. And they are the church of God at Corinth. God has, still, has done a work and is still going to do a work. And they're within the context of their region, of, of Corinth. Um, 
Where's Corinth? Well, you can kind of see it's a little bit west of where Greece is, and, or where Athens is, rather. And, you know, it's a port town. Now, when you think about America, two of the places where you're going to find the greatest, I'll call them bastions of um, either liberalism or anti-Christian sentiment, is going to be the college campus and it's going to be the coast. Follow the coast. That's where you find the, the most anti-Christian sentiment or in, within the campuses themselves. And that's exactly what kind of a city this is. They've got the educated, but they're also on the coast. They get all these people coming from all these different regions throughout the world. And they're presented with new ideas, new philosophies, and even new religions. And I love the fact that Paul didn't go, whoa, that's bad. Stay away from there. Quite the opposite. He said, that's where God's called me. I'm going in. That's where I'm going to bring the gospel. And that's where God called you out as a church and as a body of believers. Amazing. And God not only birthed this church here, he kept her. He preserved her. This is Jesus' bride, the one that he loves deeply. And the emphasis, as you'll see on this text, is actually not on the church. It's on Jesus. In fact, one of the exercises you're going to do in the life groups this week is you're going to count how many times Jesus is mentioned in here. Answer, it's a lot in just these first nine verses, many times. And so Paul is going to say, we're going to get this emphasis off of ourselves, and let's start out with what we're about, and that's our Lord, Jesus Christ. And he mentions it is the church of God. This is the one that God possesses. The church doesn't belong to any leader. It belongs only to God. Um, I'm not the kind of pastor who, when someone says something to me, I hyper-assess what they say and, you know, try to change this word or do whatever. But there is an instance that people say to me, and I, I do correct them on. And that is when they come, they say, you know, let me tell you something about your church, or a great thing about your church, or whatever. And I say, I appreciate that, and I know what you're saying, but you need to know something. It's not my church. It's Jesus' church. I just happen to be the pastor that has the stewardship of shepherding at this time of this season. But this past month showed us this church will be just fine without me. But God has called us into this. And it's that same stewardship that each one of us is meant to have and to maintain. God has you in this body, and he wants to use you in and through it. It is his church that we will be stewards of. And so when Paul looks at a church, the first place he goes is not to the leaders and not to the congregants. He goes right to the head, Jesus Christ. That's the focus. And he sees in Jesus their cause, their power, their reason for existence, their reason for fellowship. What is, what is the common denominator? It's not socioeconomic. It's not race. It's Christ. That's what unites them. And so God loves his own, and we should too. Now, how many of you heard this? I'm sure all of you have. You know, Jack, I love Jesus, but it's the church that I have a problem with and don't really like. I think we've all heard that at times. And I think I can understand why people would say that at times, too. But um, if we laugh about that, I don't think Jesus does. Any more than if I stood before you and your spouse or you and one of your children or you and somebody you care for, and I deliberately insult them in front of you. What are you going to do? Hold my drink. All right, you know, I'll fight you over this. Yeah, I'm not going to say they're perfect, but I love them. I love them, and I'm going to protect them. That's how God feels. That's how Jesus feels about his church. 
One time my brother was, uh, well, my brother-in-law has been one of the assistant city managers for the city of Dallas. And at one point, he was over the police and the fire. And because he's management, there at times meant that he was going to be at odds with some of the union leaders within each of those departments. Well, my brother met one of the union leaders at that time. And he was having this conversation. And my brother says, hey, let me ask you something. You know John Fortune? And the guy goes, yeah, I know him. And at that point, my brother intervened real quick. He says, well, he's my brother-in-law. Before the guy had a chance to embarrass himself and run him down to talk about all the problems that he had with him. When I think about that, I think about, okay, how often do we run down the church? We focus on the problems rather than realizing this is the very church that Jesus loves. When I officiate a wedding, usually the people are young and I get them at their best. All right? The woman's been getting ready since 9 a.m. for a 2 p.m. wedding, and she just looks remarkable. And the guys have showered and shaved for the first time in just a couple of days, but they look great. And they all come forward, and we get them up here, and it's beautiful, and it's wonderful. And they just, again, they're at their best. And they haven't had the chance yet to see the other person with a swollen face first thing in the morning. And they haven't had the chance yet to smell morning breath as it comes on them. Don't amen me out there. <clears throat> and then as time goes on, we don't look quite the same, do we? Man, what happens to us? Our chest falls into our drawers. And we look different. And we all, again, we start great, but things don't go so well. We become what I'll call foul, F-O-W-L. We get crow's feet and rooster necks. And we don't look our best anymore. And yet, can we have a greater love as time goes on and as beauty begins to fade and wane? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we can. And it, Jesus, though, is the opposite. He doesn't start out with us at our best. He came to us when we were at our worst, when we were unattractive and unlovely and not nice. And he saw a love, and he, by his grace, brought us into that fellowship. And that's what Paul is going to rejoice in, that Jesus takes us, and then he begins this transformation of us over time. You see it in the latter part of verse 2, that we are sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. The local church at Corinth would be the place that God was going to inhabit that city. And God loves her, and he lives with a bride that has warts, and he's okay with that. They're sanctified. They're being cleaned up from their sin and been set apart for a specific use. They're saints by calling. They didn't do anything to earn this. God said, I have chosen you, and I'm going to work in and through you. And the commonality that all have is that Jesus is the head of all. We're related to him. It's as if we all now have the same last name. And it's his, Christ. And because of that, it's in verse 4 that Paul gives thanks. He says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus. There it is, grace, God's unmerited favor. He has given it unto you, his church. And nothing they did and nothing they would do would keep that grace. It's God's to freely give. It's what they received Verse 5, in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge. 
So the ability to know God, then turn around and to communicate those truths all came from him. He had given them that. Verse 6, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. As time went on, their lives were changed. And because they were changed, it was a proof and evidence that God was doing a work. In fact, as we'll read later in chapter 6, you see what they came out of when it says that you were fornicators, idolaters, adulteresses, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And then Paul will say, and such were some of you. And what I would say is, such is all of us in some way, shape, or form. And that's exactly the kind of people God went to and brought a transformation. And so their transformation from death to life was a testimony to the world. And God wasn't done transforming them. He gave them a new identity and a new person, but then he was going to go one step further. And look what he did in verse 7. So that you're not lacking in any gift. God was not only going to redeem them, he was going to gift and equip them such that he could then use them to build up his church. Amazing. I would never do that. I would say, just sit over there, don't touch anything, and don't do anything. Just let it be, and I'll run it. And that's not the way God's going to do it. He brings us in. Verse 7, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you've been changed, and you've been transformed, but God's going to do even more, and you'll see it in the resurrection. Verse 8, and he will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not only that God has saved you, he goes further to say, God has equipped you, God is going to transform you. He's going to use you in some mighty ways. And yet this book is going to show us they had taken some of the gifts that God gave them, and they didn't use them right. In fact, they abused them in some cases. God gives them a divine knowledge of himself, and what will they do? They'll turn around and they'll puff themselves up about how much they know about God. God gave them spiritual gifts to help the church grow. They'll turn that around and try to put the spotlight off of Christ and onto themselves. Look at me and my gift. Look at what I can do. God gave them a deliverance from sin and a freedom to live new. They turned it around and said, hey, if we're free, we're free to sin. We can even do that and rejoice in it. God gave them liberties, and yet they took their liberties and in turn began to use them such that they hurt other people with the liberties that they exercised for those who didn't have the same liberties. And all of this has the same common denominator. You take the spotlight off of Christ and put it onto me. That's the issue. I become central in the focus. But the one main verse in this passage that turns it all around, I think, is in verse 9, where it says, and God is faithful. That's the part you circle. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the center point, the focus of everything. Even at times that they weren't being faithful, God still was. And that's how Paul begins. We won't, we won't look at you. Let's look at God first and what he can and will do and the fellowship that we all have with one another because of that in Christ. So if we have that fellowship with Jesus, we necessarily have to have it with one another, and we will. So the big idea behind Paul's greeting in these first nine verses is that church is a demonstration of the faithfulness of God. When you look at the local church, you need to remember God is faithful. God's keeping them. He's brought them up into a knowledge of him. 
And some of you say, well, Jack, I've seen some churches. I've been in some churches. And I don't know that I can go with you there. You know, they're pretty rough. I would just remind you, he hasn't given up on them. Same as he hasn't given up on you or on me. So we need to trust him, even when the church isn't at her best. What happens when the church hurts you? You feel like you haven't had something, you know, it hasn't been done right by you. Well, we go to the one down the street, don't we? We leave. Paul says, no, no. You don't run from the church when that happens. Go towards Christ, and it will bring you towards one another as you seek to work this out. And it's because Jesus is here, and his spirit is in and among us. When I was in um, Israel, when Karen and I went, we had this Jewish guide. His name was Ronnie Simon. He was excellent. And as he was telling us all these different things about Israel, he made a point to stop. And he said, now, all you Americans come over here and you talk about the Holy Land. He says, I want to enlighten you to something. This land isn't holy. Only God is holy. And if you want to call that, if anything that the land would receive that looks holy, it's only because God has made himself present within that land. But God is the one who is holy. And I would say that about the church. When you look at the church, is the church holy? Only God is holy. But God has made the promise that his spirit will abide in the believers within that church. And because of that, the church becomes holy because God is present in and amongst us. And so the cry of this book is going to be repeatedly saying, if this is who you are, believe it and live it. And don't let the problems push you away, cause you to look at other things. You keep your focus back on Christ. That's where you're meant to go. That's what we unite in for his glory and for his name's sake. And when you see the church's blemish, blemishes, and when you see the church's crow's feet and rooster necks, don't run away. Run towards. Run towards him, and he'll pull you towards one another because God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Would you bow? Tom, while they're bound, would you go ahead and come on up uh, with your team? And with your heads bowed, I just want to ask you a couple of questions before we conclude in prayer and in song. My first question is this, do you know this Savior? Do you know him? Because God wants to use his spirit and he wants to use this very imperfect church to help you to get to know him, to help you to grow in him and your love for him as you discover and continue to learn, just like all of us, his great love for you. And so I just want to let you know this room is filled with people who would love to help do for you what someone once did for us, to walk you through who he is and help you on that journey of faith. Because God loves you. I read the list of the problems. All of us have been there. And yes, even you, God loves, and he wants to transform you. And you're not going to earn it. You're not going to gain it by being better or more resolved on your own. You get it by receiving it by faith in him and walking in it.